We're in the Gospel of John, and we've been going through a series uh, looking at big picture themes and symbols in John. <clears throat> and I want to begin today with a quote that I've shared before, a story that I've shared before, and then tie it into today. And uh, the story is about the Prince of Grenada, an heir to the Spanish crown, who was sentenced to life in solitary confinement in Madrid's ancient prison. The dreadful, dirty, and dreary nature of the place earned it its name, the place of the skull. Everyone knew that once you were in, you would never come out alive. The prince was given one book to read the entire time, the Bible. With only one book to read, he read it hundreds and hundreds of times. The book became his constant companion. After 33 years of imprisonment, he died. And when they came to clean out his cell, they found some notes that he had written using nails to mark the soft stone of the prison walls. The notations were of this sort. Psalm 118 verse 8 is the middle verse of the Bible. Ezra 7:21 contains all of the letters of the alphabet except the letter J. The ninth verse of the eighth chapter of Esther is the longest verse in the Bible. No word or no name more than six syllables can be found anywhere in the Bible. Person comments, this individual spent 33 years of his life studying God's living word, yet he could only glean trivia. From all that we know, he never made any religious or spiritual commitment to Christ. He simply became an expert at Bible trivia. Friends, I hope that as we talk about this pattern of seven in John's gospel, we're tracing out three main things, as I mentioned last week by review. We're tracing out the three I am statements that Jesus made. We're tracing out three lengthy personal conversations that he had with certain, with certain individuals. And out of the 35 or so miracles that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry, we're tracing out seven that John declares as signs because, as we said, he's not interested in the power that was manifested in the miracles, but he's interested in what those miracles say about Jesus and what action they call us to. But as we look at these patterns, as we look at these symbols, may we never lose sight of the God that we're meant to connect with the God that we're meant to be in relationship with. Oh, that we would never get to a point where God's Word just becomes facts and information and trivia that gets used Lord knows how. And it's very easy to do that. I, I want to give you the big picture today because as we kind of dive deep into the text, I want to make sure that you never lose sight of the big picture. And, and in my mind, this is the big picture. We're going to look at a guy named Nicodemus today. <clears throat> Nicodemus was as we're going to find out, a, a Pharisee. And in ancient uh, Jerusalem, there were as many as 6,000 Pharisees at any one time. But he was also a ruler of the Jews, which means he was part of the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin was comprised of Pharisees, but only 70. So these were the top 70 out of the 6,000. He was the top of the top. They were considered kind of the supreme court of the day. So he was at the top of his field. He couldn't really climb any higher. And really, I believe this conversation that he has with Jesus, I believe John is using it as, 
Nicodemus represents the epitome of intellectualism, the epitome of intellectualism. He was highly educated, a teacher of teachers. I mean, he was the guy. He was the rabbi of rabbis. He was deeply religious. No one knew the laws, the Torah, the customs, the observances, the ceremonies, the prophecies, the history of Israel better than him. As a member of the Sanhedrin, he enforced the rules. He had huge control over people. And we see how the religious leaders of the day abused that control and that power, that authority, how they manipulated people. We, we know from other texts that he was very wealthy and he was comfortable. He led a protected life. Yet for all of these things, I believe he was empty. He was empty. He was searching. Um, he was broken. He, he felt insufficient. He had climbed the ladder of success, as we've heard, only to get to the top and find out that the ladder was leaning upon the wrong thing. We've heard that, you know, those who climb the corporate ladder, they get to the top only to find out that it's leaning on the wrong building or the wrong thing. And what disillusionment uh, sweeps over a person at that point when they realize, I have dedicated my life, my study, my passion to stuff that that really doesn't contain the answers, the meaning of life, the purpose to life that I'm searching for. He epitomizes those who know all that there is to know spiritually and religiously, and yet have failed to arrive at the point of it all, the goal of it all, which is Jesus. One of my favorite verses that you hear me quote so many times, because I don't think there's a better verse in the Bible that captures this, is when Jesus says, to the religious leaders in John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. He says, you search the scriptures because you believe that they hold the keys to eternal life. And you're right. Yes, that's true. They, They speak of me. And yet you're unwilling to come to me that you might receive this life. So you're going through the motions and you're doing stuff that's right and, and pure and, and worthy, but you're missing the point of it all. And friends, oh, that, you know, being a Christian and coming to church wouldn't turn into that, where we keep up appearances and we're doing everything that a good family and a good man and a good woman and God-fearing person should do, and yet we're, we're missing a relationship with Jesus. You know, I, I, an example is I really believe there are people in the world today who worship the Bible, and yet they fail to have a personal relationship with the God of the Bible. They have a lot of knowledge about Scripture. They can debate people. They know facts and figures and history and, and prophecies, and yet you don't sense that there's any connection or relationship with God and how sad that is. People who study religion and yet lose sight of what it's all about, the one who it's pointing to. And this is the big picture perspective that I want you to not lose sight of today as we drill down deeper into the life of Nicodemus and, and what our text is, is saying to us. And I, if you read the teaching teaser that went out this week, I want to challenge you to listen or to read this passage, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21, conversationally. 
Because so often, especially verses 11 to 21, we read as a, almost a theological treatise. For God so loved the world that He gave not His only Son, and whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, for God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world or judge the world, but that the world through Him might live. And it goes on and on and on. And all of these details and facts, which should become trivia, but really this is part of of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And their theologians, scholars are divided on this as to whether this is John or the editor uh, under the inspiration of the scripture just telling us stuff at this point or whether this is part of Jesus' conversation. And there's no break in the text. There's no reason in my mind to believe that this is not part of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And if you've been looking at the text this week, it's interesting that Nicodemus doesn't come to Jesus like other religious leaders with a bunch of questions. And most of the other leaders, it was not only a bunch of questions, but they weren't even genuine questions. They were questions to try and trip him up and find fault with him. But rather, Nicodemus comes with a statement, and we're going we're gonna to read that statement. And, and so you don't really hear the questions and the doubts and the struggles that Nicodemus has, but as I as I said in the, the teaser as well, we have to trust that a, that a divine, omniscient, all-knowing God addresses in his responses to Nicodemus all of the issues of his heart, and so we can learn through that. And I, I just want to say one more thing before we dive into the text, but many of you have heard me say this, many of you have not heard this, but um, back in the day, there were a bunch of traveling preachers that would stop and preach at the local synagogues. And it was the job of the local elders, after the person spoke, to declare whether what they preached or said was, was factual and in line with Scripture or whether it was heretical. And so if the traveling preacher had really illuminated the Scripture and said what was correct, they would respond afterwards with, amen, amen, which is truly, truly. And we see that three times in our text today. And the, the ironic thing, the funny thing about Jesus' style is Jesus does not wait for somebody to affirm his words when he's done. He begins with amen, amen, truly, truly. He said, I'm telling you ahead of time that you can go to the bank on this. This is solid. This is straight from God. And I don't need your affirmation, your confirmation. I'm declaring this as God's divine truth ahead of time. So keep that in mind as we read today. And if you'll permit me, if you'll indulge me, I want to read today's text as conversationally and not literally as it reads in your Bible. So please don't receive this as blasphemy, but just hear it as it was probably delivered to Nicodemus. John 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, they cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is it with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak, and I believe Jesus is speaking here not of he and his disciples, but John will say it's the twofold testimony of Jesus as the Word of God, the Word of God made flesh. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten from the Father, he has revealed him. And the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, who Jesus speaks about in John 16, who will come and convict the world of sin, righteousness, and truth. So it's the twofold testimony. And remember, why is John saying this? Because every fact in ancient time was confirmed in the presence of two or three witnesses. So it's a twofold testimony of the Godhead, God the Son and God the Spirit testifying to these things. Truly, truly, verse 11, we speak of that which we know and testify of that which we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ever ascended into heaven except for me, the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must I be lifted up, so that whoever believes in me will have eternal life. For God the Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, me, that whoever believes in me <clears throat> would not perish, would not be lost eternally, is what it really says, but might have eternal life. For God didn't send me into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through me. The one who believes in me is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, me. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, me. I'm the light of the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, me. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, me and does not come to the light, me, for the fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever practices the truth comes to the light, comes to me, so that their deeds may be shown as having been wrought in God. Kind of takes on a whole different flavor than how we normally read it. The fact that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night can mean a number of different things. He could have come out of fear of being exposed, um, as being a follower of Christ, or at least someone who is inquisitive and has questions, and also being affiliated with a religious group. We read later on in Matthew chapter 19 that Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man who owned the wine press and the, the empty tomb that gave, uh, his, took Jesus' body off of the cross with Nicodemus and prepared it and buried it, that he uh, was a secret disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews, meaning the Jewish leaders. And that could have been the case with Nicodemus as well. It also could be the case that Nicodemus is wanting to go to Jesus at a time when he can go deep with him and have a one-on-one, -on -one, uninterrupted, and not having to wait 
uh, through the questions and the, the needs of the crowd, but just have this one-on-one. And, and the fact that Jesus is accessible and he knows how to find Jesus and Jesus makes himself available speaks volumes. It wasn't like Jesus was like, hey, I'm off the clock. I'm nine to five, catch me tomorrow, I'm done for today. You know, I've had a hard day, that's enough. And it, it kind of reminds me of when I went to Israel for the first time. Uh, I had the pleasure of going with Jeff Sponsor from our congregation, and he will attest to this, that we kind of walked from seven in the morning till seven at night. And at dinner time, we would sit down with our extended group. Uh, it was at the time APU uh, professors, administrators, faculty, um, and uh, the trip was led by Dr. Mullins, who is the Old Testament professor at, at APU. And the thing that Jeff and I love particularly about Dr. Mullins, we sat at his table every night, and from 7 o'clock at dinner till often 10 or 11 o'clock at night, we just picked his mind about Scripture and about history and about archaeology, and he never tired. I mean, the more we asked, the more passionate and excited he got. And it wasn't him saying, hey, man, I'm tired. I got to go to bed because it's a long day tomorrow. He, he really kind of satisfied our questions every night until we were the ones that said, hey, we totally appreciate you making yourself available. And so it may have been this exact thing that Nicodemus was wanting to have with Jesus and be able to pursue these things. And Nick begins with a statement rather than a list of questions, like I said. So it shows his receptivity. He he begins, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. For Nicodemus to call Jesus a rabbi communicates respect because he was a teacher of teachers. And he says, we have to believe that you came from God because nobody can do the things that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus' immediate response in verse 3 to Nicodemus is that he needs to be born again. And it's obvious that Nicodemus doesn't understand what that means because the Greek word can mean three different things. It can first of all mean that one needs to be um, born again from the beginning completely or radically, or it can mean they need to be born again like a second time, or it can mean that they need to be born again meaning from above or from God. And obviously, if if the Greek can mean all of those things, there's no English word that, that communicates all of that in, in one, just one word. It's impossible to communicate that. But, but really, to be born again, Jesus is saying, is to undergo such a radical change that it's really like a new birth. It's really like starting all over again. It's to have something happen to our soul that can only be described as being born all over again, which is a beautiful thing. And the whole process isn't a human achievement, but it's because of God's grace and power alone. It's obvious that this new birth, this this new life comes from God by His grace and power. It's not anything that we achieve or can boast about on our own. That's the essence of the new birth that Jesus is calling Nicodemus to. And what does Jesus say? He says, you can't see the kingdom of God until you've been reborn. And I think we lose sight of this. Oftentimes we're talking to somebody who doesn't have a relationship with God through Christ yet, and things just do not make sense to them. It's very valid to say, you know, there's a lot that is not going to make sense to you until you receive Christ as your Savior. Because you don't have the spiritual eyes to see spiritual things yet. 
There's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense in terms of worldly wisdom. Paul said in Corinthians that the the wisdom of, of the world is foolishness to God and vice versa. God's wisdom is foolishness to the world. It just doesn't make sense. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. And, you know, the... The exalted one is the one among you who serves you, not the one who's being served, and all of these ironic statements that Jesus makes. And Nick's response in verse 4 is, shows that he's obviously looking at the wrong things. He's only looking at things in, in physical terms. And what we see here is that all of his knowledge and all of his education, all of his advancing in his field can't help him see God in spiritual things unless God allows him and gives him the spiritual eyes. And I I think we lose sight of that for ourselves and for others that we share with, that it's not just about how intelligent somebody is, but it's about their ability to see and to discern spiritual things and not just things, physical things. And and Nicodemus is certainly in that that situation. Jesus clarifies in verses 5 and 6 that there's a difference between physical birth, being born of water, and being born of the Spirit. And that the requirement is being born of water and the Spirit, which I believe is really a reference to the baptism of repentance that John the Baptist was calling people to. That they needed to repent of their past ways and put those behind them and rise to newness of life in in Christ and in the Spirit. And that's really what Jesus was calling Nicodemus to, uh, repentance as well. Then in verse 8, Jesus uses an illustration that draws upon the imagery of the wind. And in the Greek, the word for wind and spirit is exactly the same. So there's a lot of word plays here between the Holy Spirit and wind. But basically, it's very possible that Nicodemus came to Jesus at a time when the winds were howling outside in the city, kind of ripping through the city. That's very common in, in Jerusalem. And, you know, the structures back then weren't, you know, the, the strong, sturdy structures of today. And so you really heard the wind. It was powerful as it beat against the windows and the door. And it may have made for a very accessible object lesson or illustration as Jesus is speaking about wind. And so the point becomes, what is, what is Jesus illustrating through this? And we kind of talked about that as a staff this week. And one of our resident theologians, Jimmy Licata, had a really good insight. He said, you know, if you're a Pharisee and you're part of the Sanhedrin, your whole life is about control. You know everything and you're controlling other people. And wind is a very good example of something you can't control. And that Nicodemus had to be open to the fact that there are spiritual realities that were outside of his grasp and his understanding and his control, and he needed to have a posture of humility and receptivity. I think there's another point that Jesus is making here as well, and that is that you and I believe in a lot of things that we can't see and we can't explain, that we don't understand. There are a lot of realities in life that we can't see and we don't understand, and yet we believe in them. And Jesus is saying wind is very much like that. Now, our meteorologists, they can't tell us with certainty when it's going to rain. They're always wrong on that. But they're pretty good nowadays at telling us where the wind's coming from and where it's going and how fast it's blowing. So we know a little bit more today, but there's still a lot about it that we don't know. And we can hear it, and we can feel it, but we can't really see it, and we, 
We don't know, but we believe it. And there's a lot of things like that in life. And Jesus is basically saying, you have to realize that your intellectualism, your education has led you to a certain point, but there's still a lot that you don't understand, that you can't control, that you can't explain. And that's huge. So for a second time, Nicodemus responds, how can this be? And I believe Jesus' words to him in verse 10 are not scolding. They're not belittling him or speaking down to him like you're a leader of leaders and you don't understand this. I believe that Jesus is merely saying, if you of all people don't understand this, then what does that say about the system that you've been following? What does that say about the insufficiency of your education and of your pursuits? Where does that leave the common person if you don't understand that? Jesus is exposing the fact that what he has been following is unable to help him connect the dots, unable to help him arrive at the truth of what the prophecies and the passages are proclaiming. There's a powerful example of this in The Chosen. I've been recently kind of getting up to date with season three of The Chosen, and it's season three, episode two, and it's, it's really a chilling moment. I mean, this, the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up because Jesus is back in Nazareth, and he is encouraged by some of the disciples to do the reading in the local synagogue. And so he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and he's reading that familiar passage, you know, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for he's anointed me to bring deliverance to the captives, and on and on and on. And he closes the book and sits down, because it was when the rabbi would sit down that the interpretation of what was read would happen. And that's when Jesus is basically saying, this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. It's the first time uh, in John's gospel that Jesus is really saying, I'm the guy. I'm the guy that you've been praying for, waiting for. I'm the Messiah. And the, the, the local religious leaders, the, the synagogue rabbi are inflamed. They're thinking blasphemy. And, and Jesus goes on to tell them that it's not their Jewish roots and lineage that make them a shoe-in for God's grace and mercy and salvation. It doesn't qualify them. They need to come to God in desperation, acknowledging their spiritual debt. And, and the, the rabbi of the, the synagogue there snaps back, we are the chosen seed of, of Abraham. We have never, ever been in spiritual debt. And it just is so powerful because Jesus literally, the actor does such an amazing thing. He tears up. And he's just, he's, he's so grieved. He's like, until you realize your desperate need for God, you will never find his salvation. And then he references, you know, there were many widows in the days of Elijah, but God only called Elijah to heal and to help one widow. There were many lepers in the time of Elisha, Elijah's protege, and yet God only called um, Elisha to heal Naaman the leper, the commander of the king, uh, king Amon's armies, to heal him. And both of these people, the widow and the leper, were Gentiles. Why did God avoid all of these people, his own people, Jews, and, and go outside of the Jewish nation, the chosen ones, to heal Gentile dogs is how they viewed them. And Jesus says it was precisely because of their need, and they recognized their need. 
And Jesus is grieved as he's saying this because it's like they don't get that they have a need. And friends, as we look at this today, it's essential that we, like Nicodemus, understand our need. I don't care if you've been going to church your whole life. I don't care if you've read the Bible 20 times. I don't care if you feel like you never sin and you're, you're a pillar of moral purity and a great example. To, it's all about understanding your need for God and His grace at work in your life. I, as a pastor, understand that more than anybody, you know. That the, the enemy beats me up every week mentally and spiritually over things like this because who am I? Who am I to get in front of you and say, what do I have to say that has any worth to you? And it, it drives me to dig in God's wor- word every week because I have nothing beneficial and lasting to give to you apart from his word. And that's why I have to make so sure that what I'm proclaiming is His Word and not my own ideas or thoughts or stories. You know, this isn't story time with Uncle Remus and let me just entertain you and tell a few jokes and and get you to, you know, it's tough. And Nicodemus is realizing that to be born again means he has to rethink everything that he's learned. That what he has learned hasn't been wrong, it's just the way that it's been applied. Well, verses 11 to 13, Jesus is saying he's the only one qualified to testify and to reveal spiritual things. Because Jesus comes from heaven, he alone can speak authority about, authoritatively about heavenly things. And again, chapter 1, no one has seen God at any time but the only begotten God. Jesus has revealed him, has made him known. So Jesus his testimony, the testimony of the Holy Spirit are the, are the only ones who can speak authoritatively about spiritual things. Verse 14, he goes on to say, you know, salvation is a gift received only by believing God for it. And this is applied, or this is implied in the illustration of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. You can go back to Gen- uh, Numbers chapter 21 and read about that. But whoever looked to this bronze serpent that was attached to a pole out in the wilderness, the the fiery serpents that were biting them and, and killing many of them because God was punishing them, they found healing by looking to that symbol. And Jesus is saying, as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, even so must I be lifted. What was he talking about? What does he mean lifted up? Well, he's speaking of the cross. And the beauty is that God transforms an image of humiliation, the cross. There was nothing more detestable and, and shameful than the cross. He transforms the image of a cross into one of glory. And for John, Jesus being lifted up on the cross is the first phase of his glorification. The second phase is his ascension when he goes back to heaven. So it's a beautiful thing. It's a thing that didn't happen to, to Jesus by accident or something that was forced on him, but it was something that was done by the plan of God for our salvation. And as Moses lifted up a symbol, and he merely mediated between God and the people, Jesus doesn't lift up a symbol, he lifts up himself. Jesus himself is our healing. He is the high priest who offers a once and for all sacrifice, not for people on behalf of God, but as God. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that in all of these ways, he is superior to Moses, and there was no one higher than Moses in their minds. And so Nicodemus is just having a a radical change of thought and perspective. 
I was thinking about the fact that, you know, at the time, the Jewish people probably thought, that was kind of weird. God was frustrated with us. He sent fiery serpents to, to bite us, and the, the, the bite, the sting was fiery. It hurt, and it killed a lot of us. And then that was kind of weird what Moses did with the serpent and all of that. And God's thinking, hold on. I'm going to use this as an object lesson. But it, the object lesson isn't going to really come to fruition for 1,500 years. You know, only God can orchestrate a 1,500-year object lesson where he takes something random from the past and says, you thought that was random, but I knew right when we did that that this was foreshadowing and pointing to my son who would be lifted up on behalf of you and for your healing, that anyone that would look to him in faith would find salvation and eternal life. And that's powerful. That's powerful. Talk about a sovereign God. Verse 16, which we all know, God so loved the world that he gave Jesus as God to die for our sins, to, to bring healing and forgiveness. One of my professors at Westmont wrote, a vile world that doesn't recognize the word as God's son in human clothing, that doesn't understand the spirit of truth or believers in Jesus' name, a world that hates Jesus and his disciples that persecutes his disciples, a world incapable of receiving the spirit of truth, a world guilty of sin, full of lust and pride, a world that loves darkness rather than light as evidenced by its actions, a world whose ruler is Satan, a world that is hell-bent on judgment. But vile as it is, God loved it, and he continues to show it love. That's the love of God, powerful, incomprehensible. Verse 17, God didn't send Jesus to judge the world, but to save it. Peter, Jesus' disciple, says that in his second letter, chapter 3, verse 9. God isn't willing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And the only reason why he hasn't come back yet is he's patient. He wants to give you time, time to repent and change and, and come into relationship through Jesus. So what is Jesus saying to Nicodemus in his final words to the conversation, verses 18 to 21? I really believe he's saying that to believe the truth is to do it. To believe God's truth is to do it. Instead of, or in contrast, to doing evil things. Because truth isn't just about information that you believe in. It's something that you conform to. It's something that you submit to. Acknowledging the way that things truly are. Acknowledging the way that God made things. Conversely, to do evil things isn't just to do what's bad or morally wrong. It's to do what is false to the way that God created us and the world that we live in. So doing the truth isn't a human achievement that you and I can boast about. It's not something that earns God's favor. Look at verse 21. That's what Jesus means. The one who does the truth comes to the light so that their actions may be revealed as really having been wrought by God. The, the Greek is worked by God. As believers, we come to the light, and the light exposes that every good thing that you and I do isn't even about us. It's about the power of God who worked through us. And that's, that's what's revealed. And that is exactly what we talked about last week in John chapter 15, 
When Jesus said, abide in me and I will abide in you, just as the vine can bear no fruit of its own, so also you cannot bear fruit unless you abide in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Yeah, we can do stuff, but not stuff of eternal value. Not stuff that transforms and changes the world. Light exposes the source of our good works. God, not human ability, but to God alone be the glory. And every time we do good, God gets glory and praise, not us. Well, quick wrap-up, quick application. I believe Jesus is calling Nicodemus to a total system reset, and he's calling us to a total system reset as well. A new birth, new eyes, a new heart that only God can give us. He's calling Nicodemus, and he's calling us to repentance, to acknowledge our brokenness and our need that what we are doing and what we are pursuing isn't working. He's calling us to faith, to accept and believe spiritual realities, even the ones and particularly the ones that we can't see or explain. And then finally, he's calling us to acceptance, to accept the external historical evidence of Jesus' testimony and the internal existential evidence of the Spirit's testimony within our hearts, our conscience, to accept the free gift of salvation offered to us by God through Jesus and Jesus alone. And John's point here is that God doesn't expect anyone to receive Him or accept Him apart from evidence. So many times people view Christianity as a blind leap of faith. It is not, belief is not in the absence of evidence. No, unbelief is not about lack of evidence, but it's about rejection of evidence. It's about disbelieving in spite of evidence, testimonial evidence of the Word and the Spirit. Why this conversation, and why is John highlighting this? Again, that if you're looking for meaning and purpose in life, It's not through your intellect, it's not through your education, it's not to going to the top of your field. You can still be as empty as you were when you began. Next week, we're going to look at the woman at the well. And I think one of the things that's highlighted in that conversation is we don't find meaning and purpose in life through relationships. She had been in seven different relationships, and she was miserable, and she was searching. We find it in Jesus and Jesus alone. And if you're here today and you've never investigated the claims of Christ... He is exactly who he claimed to be. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He's God in human flesh. And if you trust him for your salvation, it's a free gift that only God can give to you. You receive it by grace, and that's the essence of new life. That's the essence of being a Christian. It's not something that I have to lead you in a prayer or somebody... You can do it in the quietness of your heart. You can do it right here today. And there's nothing more important that you could do in this world than to start a relationship with God through Christ. We've said so many times, religion is about what we attempt to do to earn God's favor. Christianity is about what God has already done through Christ for you and for me. You just have to receive it. It's like a gift that's being extended to you, and it's not yours until you take it and unwrap it. You can admire it all day long. You can know so many facts and information and trivia about the gift, but you have to personalize it. You have to appropriate it, and that's salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of Nicodemus 
and what his conversation with you represents and what it means to us even today. May we never lose sight of the big picture as we dive deep into your word. And Lord God, as we bring our gifts before you this morning, we pray that you would take our tithes and our offerings to meet the needs of this church and the needs of this community and those around the world that are doing your kingdom work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.